All right, Imam Khalid, Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. How's it going? Good to meet you. Yeah, alhamdulillah, things are going well. It's a pleasure to have you down here in Florida. Um, is the, how's it going for you guys in New York City? Uh, New York City is opening up a lot, alhamdulillah. Uh, things are going definitely a lot better than they were a couple of years ago. Yeah. But I think still a long way to go. How's the weather? Is it still freezing? The weather is, is pretty random. Yeah. Uh, some days will be literally in the teens, and then two days later it'll be 70 degrees. And that's kind of where we are right now. So. Oh, 70? Wow. Yeah. That's actually pretty high for New York. It's been pretty random. Yeah, okay. it's been pretty crazy. Do you like the Florida weather so far? Uh, yeah. I, you know, I was out here a few weeks ago also. Uh, I was yeah. speaking at a dinner for a domestic violence shelter. Oh, okay. Um, and it was beautiful. I mean, still just as amazing. Is, is that work related to your domestic shelter in New York City? The I think it's called Pillars of Peace? This or? was separate. It was for okay. another shelter. Yeah. Okay. Mashallah. Um, all right. Well, I wanted to, to start with uh, the work you do as a Muslim chaplain, if that's okay. Um, I know you started back in 05, and I think you were the first ever in the state of New York. Is that right? Uh, I was the first Muslim chaplain at New York University mm-hmm. in 2005. I don't know if I was the first at a university in the state, but mm-hmm. there were definitely Muslim chaplains in correctional facilities uh, NYPD hospitals in New York, you know, well before I was working there. I gotcha. How is it that, cause you got it pretty early, right? Like you, you, in your career, I think you were 25 years old. Is that right? I was 22 when I started working at NYU. Mashallah. Yeah. So you were right out of college. Yeah. More Mashallah. or less. Yeah. So how did they, how did you convince them to give you the job? You know, cause you're so fresh out of, out of studies. Well, initially the job was volunteer. Okay. Uh, so I did my undergrad at New York University, mm-hmm. and a lot of the way our Islamic Center's institutional development manifested stemmed from challenges around space that we were experiencing as undergrads. Mm-hmm. The university had built new buildings, took down other ones, and going into my senior year, uh, Muslim students essentially were trying to figure out where was going to be the next place we're supposed to pray yeah. as they were opening a brand new facility. And the university said that they didn't know we existed. Mm. And even if they did, they don't historically support religious communities in that way. So the Catholic Church provides for the Catholic Center. You know, Jewish alumni and foundations provide for the Jewish Center on campus. And so we, as students and recent alums, created a project to institutionalize the Islamic Center in NYU, one of the facets of which was a Muslim chaplain role, Mm -hmm. and I had started a degree at a seminary institution, and so the current students and alums, as well as some administrators at NYU, asked if I would take on the position volunteer, Uh, so there was some development to it, and if and when funding became available, uh, someone wasn't starting from scratch at that point. I gotcha. So since there was no funding initially to start with, would it make sense for a Muslim institution or just any Muslim nonprofit starting out to try to obtain funding overseas? Or does that come with a lot of baggage, like if you try to get funding from some sovereign wealth fund or something? I, I think it varies from space to space. Mm-hmm. So the nonprofit in and of itself would have to assess, you know, at a preliminary stage, um, what is its projected revenue model long term? Mm-hmm. 
there's likely funds that one can acquire from private individuals uh, and or governmental apparatus that could come with no strings attached. Oh, okay. But there's also probably some that do come with expectations. Yeah. I think a blanket kind of role, um, you know, it's, it's a personal choice. I think for our Islamic Center, uh, we've created more of like a grassroots fundraising model. Yeah. Um, contributions are coming from many individuals. Uh, we're a self-funded center. So we don't get a budget through the university, mm. even though we are uh, existing within the university's apparatus. So similar to um, certain institutions, but quite different from others. So a lot of the Ivy Leagues, you know, they've hired through their own budgets and provide programmatic funds, et cetera. Um, there's some that are just complete standalone nonprofits like Rutgers University, the University of Toronto, mm. Um, we are kind of a hybrid in that we function within NYU's apparatus, um, but still raise our own funds. And I think the two broader perspectives on fundraising, you know, you cultivate relationships with individuals who could write you large checks, or you engage large numbers of potential donors who give you small gifts, but they add up. Um, and we've been able to really leverage the latter and mm. focus on a more community-oriented uh, institution in that regard. Wow, so, th so the Muslim community in New York City funds the Muslim chapter at NYU? There's about 12 Muslim student clubs at NYU, mm. and they're fully autonomous. They're not in competition with each other, they just do different things. So mm -hmm. our law school has its own MSA, our med school, our dental school. Oh, wow. um, we have a literary magazine that's called Aftab. Uh, we have a black Muslim initiative, uh, an Islamic finance group at our business school. Um, and so those student groups get some type of budget from the university. Mm -hmm. Overall, there's about 3,000 Muslim students at NYU. Sure. And maybe, I'd say, 10 years ago now, uh, or even 12, 13, we made a conscious decision as an Islamic center to open our programs and events to people who live and work in the surrounding area. Um, and altogether, we estimate we serve a community of about 10,000 people. Mushroom. And that number pre-COVID was going up. Uh, we're now seeing certain restrictions lift, so we're going to start letting non-students in again um, and be able to gauge, you know, what that kind of estimated community size is probably more accurately and, you know, the the next few months um but in addition to our alums and others you know these are kind of the people who are contributing to us i gotcha mashallah so you've uh you've been in the role for as a muslim chaplain for about what is it 17 years now yeah that's mashallah. crazy so you, you probably I'm turning like 40 this year so mashallah. yeah it's the same so you, you probably like the job then huh i do you know alhamdulillah i'm grateful uh that the work that I'm able to do is things that I get passionate about. Mm. I think at this point in my career, what I'm more focused on is thinking, what are things that I could uniquely offer something to and not kind of engage in distractions elsewhere. So the development of other nonprofits that meet certain needs, humanitarian work in certain ways, uh, where somebody else might be the person that flies to you know, give a talk at a local masjid mm. or something to that effect. Um, I don't have to be that person, uh, but I think 
you know, being able to to do this work has has been a really amazing experience. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Are you uh, are you putting in like seventy hours a week, or what's your schedule like? Uh, you know, it's a pretty random routine, but mm-hmm. I think a big part of Islam to me is about uh, self development, right, mm-hmm. uh, and self actualization, and a big part of self development self-management is time management because time management is essentially a management of the self yeah and i feel that many people don't do this so well i teach courses also at nyu on leadership in our school of public policy um and you know these are some of the modules that we engage in that's just about work-life balance that's still healthy right and even prior to, but definitely through the pandemic, one of the things that I realized is, you know, nobody else is gonna be my kid's dad. Nobody Mm -hmm. else is gonna be my wife's husband, my parents' son. And it shouldn't have to be an either or, it can be a both and. Uh, And so there's, I think, a certain elasticity to time that we don't necessarily recognize so well. But also the default settings that we fall into, uh, that if I'm not designing my life, somebody else is gonna design it for me so that I can put in work in various capacities um, and still have time for my own self-care. And it doesn't have to be something that I'm choosing one or the other, you know? I hear you. You ever get like a, because I I don't know what kind of situations you face. I don't know if you want to jump into that, but you ever get like a midnight call from a student or something, something you have to attend to? All the time. Yeah. Emergency situations, people going through things. and that's where I think having a good self-care strategy, you know, I was 22 when I started working in this role yeah. and I had teachers who said to me, uh, you know, you're perfect for this, but get ready. It's going to be a very lonely experience. Mm. And I couldn't understand what that meant. Uh, Cause you know, I've never been in a place where I haven't had friends and kind of people to be around. And as I got more into the role, I, didn't have in the onset like a solid self-care strategy Mm. and in high school i had played a lot of sports um i was supposed to play in college i had multiple concussions as a senior in high school so i ended up not playing sports but in the early part of my career i think was just simply coasting off of like my athletic skill from when i was a a teenager Mm. and now as i got into my 20s um, and more embedded in the work, I had this foolish idea that I had to be there for everybody, but that somehow also meant I couldn't let anybody be there for me. Mm. I was getting sick a lot. My weight would fluctuate constantly. I'd be very heavy, very light. Uh, I also felt more alone than I'd ever felt in my life. Wow. And the irony of it was that I was surrounded by more people than I'd ever been, but I didn't really have those outlets or people to lean on. Mm. Uh, and I got to a point in my late twenties, uh, where I actually got shingles, which if you're familiar with it, tends to be something that people who are much older get, you know, in their seventies, eighties, uh, shingles is a kind of disease that if you've ever had chicken pox, the virus lives dormant in your nervous system. Oh, if wow. you get to a high point of stress and low point of immunity, it revitalizes, but now on a nerve track in your body mm. as blisters. And I woke up one morning and from the middle of my torso to my back, I suddenly had this like crazy track of blisters. I had no idea what wow. it was. 
I went to the doctor and the doctors told me that that was herpes. And I was like, I'm definitely don't have herpes. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. And they were like, no, no, not that kind of herpes. Um, but they explained it to me. And then they said again, you know, you're probably not like taking care of yourself. Uh, and they said, it's going to get to a point where you just have to deal with the physical pain. Mm. It's going to feel like somebody's rubbing a hot iron on your body while they're stabbing you again and again. Oh God. So literally it's on your nerve track. So even if your clothes move slightly, your whole body just erupts in pain. Oh my gosh. And I had to wait for the blisters to pop because the liquid in them was contagious. Mm. And so I was now quarantined in my parents' home uh, that I grew up in. And one night I got an email from a student who had told me uh, that earlier that day, uh, her Muslim boyfriend, this was a Muslim girl, mm. she said her Muslim boyfriend was walking with her in the hallways of a building on our campus and they you know, got into some kind of thing that he got agitated and he grabbed her by the straps of her book bag mm. and threw her against some lockers. And she said, had a security guard not intervened, she didn't know what would happen. Now she's reaching out to me for help. And I read her email and closed my laptop and went downstairs to the living room where my mother was sitting. And I just put my head in her lap and I started to cry. Because it wasn't that I didn't know how to help this person, but I couldn't provide the care for her that she needed because I wasn't taking care of myself. Mm. And literally my body was giving me every indication of where I was being stretched thin. And now I had to choose whether I paid attention to this like ultimate wake up call that I'm 29 years old and I'm getting a sickness that people who are 60, 70, 80 get, mm. uh, what am I gonna do about it? And so, you know, quantifying hours to a week, I think um, is important but also being able to recognize when you have that midnight call, what you're doing in the days prior to are gonna be important. So if I'm not good with my physical wellness, my own emotional wellness, my own mental spiritual wellness, I'm gonna be running on empty as I go to now a hospital in the middle of the night and it's gonna just overwhelm and throw off everything and, and that can't be something that continues, if, if that yeah, makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know? So what happened with the girl? Uh, we ended up getting her the resources she needed, connecting her to the people that she needed. Uh, and, you know, she was able to, I think, recognize that this was not a relationship that she should be in. Mm. Yeah. So, because th that sounds crazy. Um, do you see a lot of, because I know you're involved in like domestic violence uh, issues and whatnot. And I think you're also involved with the Nura House or your, your team co-sponsored it or something to that effect. Uh, it's a woman's shelter in New York City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So is this a common thread you're seeing in New York? I mean, in the last 15, 20 years, there probably hasn't been a week where I haven't seen somebody or been reached out to, uh, at least one, if not up to a dozen women who have men in their life who have no idea what it means to be a man. Uh, in New York, but also all over the country, different parts of the world, uh, and it's, it's there, right? I had gone to Sri Lanka, I remember, um, probably in 2011, and I was doing work with internally displaced populations there, right? So the Tamil Tigers were in the governmental regime, you know, for quite some time, and mm -hmm. twice they expelled large numbers of Muslims from their home cities, and these people just live as refugees internally, 
no infrastructure, no real access to like, wow. you know, resources. And so one of the groups I met with were just a group of women who were from one of these villages. And we had an hour together, seated at like a table like we are right now, me and maybe like eight women from Sri Lanka in these internally displaced populations. And we sat down to talk. The first thing that one of them said to me was, you know, tell us something from the Quran and the Hadith that we can go and tell our husbands so they stop hitting us, okay. right? And it's not something that's just now in demographics that are underserved, underprivileged, yeah. but people who are affluent, people of every racial background, ethnic background. Um, and so the way our Islamic center functions, and for me personally, right, I'm just trying to build what I can. Right. You know, I don't believe that God gave me a platform that's going to be self-serving. I believe in an afterlife, and I believe that what I have capacity to do is enough for me to do it, but yeah. I also don't need people's permission to do anything good. But there has to be strategy to it, right? Yeah. That fundamentally, in any form of oppression or evil, organized evil is going to always triumph over disorganized righteousness. And that's just a fact. So we have to bring interdisciplinary groups of people together to be able to break down uh, what are social ailments and inequities. And so one of the nonprofits that I've been blessed to be a part of and the building of is this organization, Pillars of Peace, um, that we started uh, conceptualizing in 2017, uh, built out strategic plans for it, leveraged talent in the community. Um, a couple members of our community had said to me, you know, you talk about domestic violence a lot and say we need to start building certain things. We want to do it. And I said, great. And we put down some work for about three, four or five months, reached out to people to volunteer to help in like further development and then conceptualize some more. Uh, we launched our first capital campaign in 2019 that was for the Noura House, mm. um, which is an emergency confidential shelter for women and children who are survivors of abuse. Uh, I thought it would take us a year to raise $700,000 to purchase and renovate a building. Um, in a week and a half, we raised a million dollars from 9,000 unique donors, uh, which was affirming in a lot of different ways, yeah. right? Like I had relief groups that I talked to, we collaborate with, they said, people just don't wanna support domestic projects in the Muslim community. And I said, I don't believe that to be true. And it was affirming in that sense that people jumped in on that. Um, it was also affirming in the sense of you know, we're trying to build a community that is value driven. Yeah. Right. That comes together on ethics and not just kind of externals. And you had 9000 people giving what amounted to a million dollars. That means that's like a ton of people giving ten dollars, one hundred dollars, fifty dollars, knowing that their individual contribution will make a difference. But as a collective, we can we can do stuff. Yeah. Um, and that idea with pillars is to grow it to like an eight to $10 million a year nonprofit, offering financial empowerment, advocacy, legal work, uh, support to asylum seekers, um, residential services, just everything across the board. MashaAllah. How do you, how do you get, cause, cause you were talking about how you were uh, asked this question. How do you convince a Muslim man that thinks he is 100% doing the halal right thing when he's beaten up on his wife? How do you tell him otherwise? I mean, if this is like a practicing Muslim, you can literally look into the hadith 
when the Prophet as a manifestation of the Quran, his own wife says of him, that the messenger of God never struck a woman or a servant or a child ever. Mm. And anybody who wants to adopt opinions, I mean, this is a danger with text, right? right, right. Our scripture, any scripture, really any book, you can turn a book into whatever it is that you want to. And the science of extrapolating meaning from the Quran is an exegetical science, tafsir, right? You're taking mm. meaning from the text. Right. What a lot of people do these days is more eisegetical. They formulate an argument and they say, this verse, this hadith proves that. Mm. You can't deny the relationship between the Prophet's life and uh, the Quran, and he didn't do this. And anybody who now takes verses from the Quran to manipulate their own fundamental oppression or abuse of power, a second frame is like, what kind of God do you believe in? Right. Yeah. Like, how can you fundamentally believe in an afterlife and a, and, a, and a God that is the creator of everything that you're going to stand in front of and you somehow think that, like, that God is going to be pleased with this kind of behavior? Yeah. And there's numerous instances in the hadith that indicate otherwise. And you see it again and again and again. The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, he doesn't get upset so much, right? One of his characteristics uh, is, you know, that he's that he's halim, mm. like his forbearance is remarkable. And people come with their struggles of haram. Ya Rasulullah, I committed zina. Uh, you know, Ya Rasulullah, I drank alcohol. I yeah. kissed somebody I wasn't supposed to. And he walks with them through their struggles. There's certain haram things that happen, though, that the anger is apparent on his face. Somebody's racist, they're abusing somebody, they're oppressive, he doesn't mince words, right? Mm -hmm. There's a man who is seen uh, abusing like a young boy, mm. and he says, I hear a voice behind me, and the voice you know, is saying, Allah has more dominion over you than you do over this child. And he turns, he says, and he sees the messenger of God, and anger is apparent on his face. And so he says to him, Ya Rasulullah, he's free from this, right? It's not going to happen again. And the Prophet says to him, good, because had you not done so, you would have burned in the fire like a flaming coal, right? Like Damn. leaving no room for doubt, right? Yeah. And it's not a kind of oddity, but in other instances, he, he says this. To answer your question, though, in a different way, my job is to not go out and explain to people only that are kind of the naysayers, right? Mm. If I sit down and, and I've had this problem, right? I've gone to masjids and I talk about whatever I want to. Mm. And afterwards, people come with concern and they say, you know, you're talking about abuse in this way. You can't do that here. And I say, why? And they'll say, because a lot of the people who support this masjid, you know, they treat their wives in these ways. Wow. And I'll be like, what in the hell are you talking about? That's ridiculous. Like, you are not, first of all, like the guardian or gatekeeper of anything. Yeah. But that's all the more reason that we need to say these things in these spaces, yeah. right? That That is like the most disgusting kind of intention or motivation. And you should figure out why you are running a message to begin with. Yeah. But being in a space that says, okay, we're going to build precedent, right? I think people did an amazing job at establishing masjids in the United States. You can't go to a place and find, like, 
it's not hard to find a place to pray, yeah. right? And now a second layer or third wave of institutional development that we're taking people who are multi-talented, giving them a sense of how they can access their skills and credentials to build the clinics and pantries and you know soup kitchens and shelters and everything else, as well as like for-profit ventures, right? We should be creating incubators mm. and donor-advised funds and all these kinds of things because there's such a luminosity in the Muslim community that you don't tap into when you're taking like a very reductive approach. Right. It's also just always highlighting the negative, do you know? Yeah. But I don't have to get somebody's permission. You think that you th are valid in what you're doing? I'm gonna speak from the member. I've given khutbahs that are directly orienting the day of judgment to abusers. And I've done this, I remember I walked into Jummah one day and I was gonna talk about something totally different and a young woman said to me, my father is here today, right? She's not a college student. She's like in her 30s. Her father abuses their mother. And she said, he's here and I know he's gonna listen to you. Mm. Can you speak about something that gives him insight as to why it's a problem? So I spoke about gender-based violence, domestic violence, but to address like the abuser in the frame of the day of judgment, in the frame of like, our tradition teaches us that like our literal body parts are gonna talk about how we use them. Mm. So like your hand is going to speak about how it struck like someone's face and that face is going to speak, those cheeks are gonna speak, right? Like these child hearts that should not have to now take in adult emotions mm. are going to have bodies that the ears are going to say we heard like our mothers screaming right and you know that's there and it's not despite it but you still got to like move forward and yeah. get done what you can get done and so any person who says i don't think what you're doing blah 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 you're just one more person that I don't have to work with. And I'm gonna find the people <laughs> who we're gonna grow and we're gonna build. Yeah. And we're gonna get it done because it's the right thing to do. I hear you. Uh, yeah, I like that a lot. Well, uh, like um, just the, the, the way you have a free hand in approaching any topic you want. A lot of imams that I speak with, uh, they actually are controlled a little bit by their clergy. So just the way it works, I've, I've seen in, in, in a lot of masajid is that it's funded by a group of donors, so like some really uh, well-off folks like doctors and lawyers and whatnot that have worked most of their careers and they're towards the end of their career and they want to start a masjid or things like that. They control a lot of what gets mentioned at the pulpit. Um, and uh, this is just a little tidbit I've heard from an imam who's a little bit, he has a little bit of a forward-thinking mentality. He's a, a fellow student at the Islamic Seminary of America with Sheikh Hasakaldi. And uh, he mentioned a story once where he doesn't think you have to wear a thobe when you go up to the member it isn't something that that he thinks is required um and so he'll do that sometimes to, to demonstrate to the people that you don't have to wear a thobe and a head cap that's not what in, is inherently islamic that's you know just arab clothing uh and so he wore it one time uh like a suit and he got heckled by uh someone from the audience and uh that person went and basically snitched on him and so he had to switch back to his old clothing so so there's a but lot you know, of control it's, it's a challenge right yeah. i mean people i think it's more like a sociological thing mm. right than a religious thing 
you know, I live in New York City. You have a Chinatown, you have a little Italy, you have ethnic enclaves. People sociologically are attracted to familiarity and similarity, mm. right? And so you find these kind of ethnocentric kind of models. You also then find the danger of something that's more culturally hegemonic in its attitude. Mm. And you have individuals that are trying to create precedent that, you know, it's going to have pushback. And that's how yeah. you establish legitimacy. It's very hard for some people to understand that Sharia definitely has obligations and prohibitions. But there's a lot of gray that allows for people to come and be Muslim without having to commit cultural apostasies of mm. some kind. Right. But I can become myopic now when I believe that uh, permissibility somehow equates to normativity, that allowance of it means also that it's the only way for it to be done. Yeah. Where they're like, no, you could like get on the member and respect the member and still approach it in kind of what, you know, Hajj is a beautiful example of this. If you ever go for Hajj yeah. and you walk through like the tent city of Mina, after a couple of days into Hajj, you can remove like the white garment, the ihram, and you see like the depth of beauty in Sharia because you walk, like the tents are categorized based off the country you get your visa from. Mm. So you walk through this tent city of millions of people, there's people from every country in the world, right? And you go to where people are from the Gulf states, the men are wearing white kind of thobes, the women are wearing abayas, they're speaking Arabic, you know, their food has like a certain kind Capsule. of spice and yeah. grill, whatever. You go to the Indian subcontinent, the clothing has changed, it's got a little diversity in color, yeah. the shirts go to like below the knees, but not all the way to the ankles. Language is different. You know, Indonesian tents, Malaysian tents, they have a little bit more vibrancy. You know, you go to the tents from, you know, Gambia, Senegal, there's like purples and gold and, you know, all of these kinds of things. It's beautiful that yeah. Islam permeates all of this. Now when you go to the tents where people are from the United States, you have people from all of those tents and right. tents. Yeah. And when they go back to their spaces where they have their own challenges, but they have at times a cultural uniformity, we come back here where we have to deal with things that are different. And when somebody is exposed to something a certain way, and there's complexity to it, because a lot of like religious leaders, they don't get respected so well, right? right? And you can feel for them. And that's to me, you know, our tradition is intentions rooted in actions that are sound. But you can have a multiplicity of intention to a singular action. So I know that there's certain privileges afforded to me that I can get on a mic and say certain things that like a local imam might not be able to because yeah. they're already not getting paid well and they're being asked to do things not in their training yeah. and they have kids that they have to like feed and they just have to abide by like the apparatus that's restricting them. So it's more important for those of us who are not in that way to utilize our platforms to say what we can say yep. and not like govern through complacency, right? And then change yep. is possible, right? It fluctuates, you know? Yeah, now we're fine. Yeah, so um, uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a serious problem because uh, if, th if we think that that's a common problem uh, and there's obviously a lot of... Uh, Islam building happens at Masajid and people they get their Muslim identity from a lot of times their Masajid Then we're kind of being held back in a way. What do you think is the solution to that? How do we move forward knowing that? We're being held back by the old guard 
I think that a, a first frame is to be able to like shift the paradigm and see like the starting point is not rooted in a negative or reactive, mm. right? When you are living in a supremacist society that now creates purposefully a psychological shackling, right? Our communities have the collective experience of colonization, slavery, imperialism, embedded in what is now transgenerational traumas passed on that has us believe that we have to aspire towards a certain embrace of whiteness and kind of move away from anti-blackness mm. uh, or move you know t away from blackness right yeah. entrenched in anti-blackness and what it does is it begins to have you question yourself in certain ways right uh the thoughts that you think are thoughts that you believe are your own thoughts, but in reality, the thoughts that you're thinking are not your own thoughts, but they're the thoughts that the system wants you to think. It wants you to not see your successes or see like where you have potential to really embrace change and build and grow together. And there's tons of people doing amazing things. There's definitely spaces that are frustrating to work in and be a part of, but I think one solution is to start telling the stories that people are really successful at what they do yeah. and encouraging like an approach of embracing what's positive, right? Like we talked about pillars of peace. I have people from all over the country that reach out and their primary reason of contributing is that we're fed up with what's happening locally, but we're also, excited and proud of what's going on over there and tapping into people through a positive base to me is what the prophet would do right he would see what was inherently good within you and help you to feel empowered through that mm. right recognizing not like what is romanticized ideals or utopian-esque values that are intangible but islam is about reality and a facet of our reality is also that there's a lot of people that are doing really amazing, amazing things, and we don't do a good job of telling their stories, mm. you know? And then it curtails the idea that somebody who's talented and skilled, like yourself, your peers, your friends, can create new apparatus that doesn't need legitimacy from existing apparatus, mm. right? My validation doesn't have to come from what's already there. You can have multiple spaces and the masjid can just be the place to pray. And you go and build these other things that start to meet the needs of other people in, in different ways. That strategy, I think, is what's critical. And our tradition historically brings together the religious scholar with the social worker, the doctor, the mental health practitioner, the entrepreneur, the person who's got like the funds. And in an interdisciplinary mode, they develop the institution that serves the need of the beneficiary and allows for it to be something that's well thought out and strategic. I think there's people who are doing that. And there's people who also uh, get afraid to do it because they're curtailed by so many different things that that, that are taking place. Mm. Somebody is not doing right by you in your local community, 
why do you donate to them then? Right? <laughs> why do you keep going back to that place? Yeah. You know, and you don't have to think big. You don't have to think like it's either mega mosque or nothing. Start going to like a local cafe with people and build something in small numbers. If I could build one bed for one woman who's a survivor of abuse to be away from a house that's anything other than a home, mm. then there's still value in doing for that one person. And then with strategy, it's like, how do we get to 10 beds in the next two years or 100 beds in the next five years, right? But you gotta start someplace and then grow. And I think what supremacy does, what like this overt kind of patriarchy and capitalistic greed that's unsashable does, is it dilutes our creativity, right? Allah is the one that gave us our imaginations. Mm. You know, he gave us uniqueness as humanity from the rest of creation and that we have the ability to see things differently. And shifting that perspective is an inward process that you now empower visionary leadership and you build institutions from the ground up that are sound with real ihsan in mind that that's like excellence that you're in pursuit of. There's mm. no shortage of talent, right? You just got to get the right people, getting people to see their own ability to be a source of luminosity. And then they move forward in pursuit of like, what is actually our belief, right? Like, yeah. I believe that there's another world coming. So this world is a place of exertion. It's a place of action, a place to make decisions. You can't do that on the day of judgment, right? That's not the place to act. That's the place to be taken into account for the acts. And the barzakh, that's like ideally the place of rest or slumber. So you work hard here, get done what you can, and all you gotta do is try your best, right? I, I think a sub point to this is reframing how we engage in conversations around our faith, because we give people just like the externals, right? Which is an important part. The fic is a means to like spiritual refinement. Mm. But if you went and asked most Muslims, who is God to them? Most probably wouldn't be able to give you an answer. They might be able to spit out like something abstract, right? But my six-year-old memorized Surah Ikhlas when he was three. You know, and we'd be walking down the street in Manhattan, he would be on the subway just like belting it out, right? His three-year-old mind can memorize it, but it's not in a place where like innately as a child, he can understand the existence of a God, yeah. you know, subhanAllah. But he's not gonna understand like intrinsic detail of what it means, he's only three. Yeah. And even now when he's six and his sister is nine, but that ability to feel empowered through your relationship with the divine that you see in the prophetic example, you see in like the prophet Ibrahim, they believed in a God that believed in them. They didn't believe in like a God that was looking for reason to push them down. And so when you learn the word fard and haram before you learn who is like the lawmaker, right? What does it mean to have a rub and everything that goes into that with like nurture and care and cultivation, right? When you learn to pray your sunnah prayers before you learn whose sunnah you're following, you're going to then believe in a God that's just watching you as opposed to watching over you. Mm. And that's not like the God of Islam, right? Like our God identifies himself as the source of mercy and love, a God to have hope in and draw strength from. And so changing that narrative 
that allows for one to feel like I can really embrace a God-centric religion, that then I just go and get done what I can get done because I'm not doing it for any other reason other than I believe in, in, in Allah and I'm asking Allah to help me see in myself what it is that he sees in me. Do you, you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah I hear you. It's, it's like uh, how can you ask someone not to drink when they don't even know who God is? It's kind of you're mentioning the centrality of Islam, the, the the main pillar before getting to the branches, right? Yeah, or at a certain point, if that's all you've given to them, and then they're like 30 years old, 20, 40, whatever, but their mind is now developing yeah. like organically its critical abilities, they're not just going to be able to live off of rituals and ends, yeah. right? It has to be a means to something. And then all these other ideologies come in, and it creates a lot of clutter and confusion. And yeah. then you go to the masjid that tends to be like, you know, dominated by a particular ethnicity or like social class or whatever else. And you're like, where's the spaces that I actually go to find revitalization and like spiritual replenishment or rest, yeah. you know, reflection? You know? I hear you. you uh, so you, you dropped the word patriarchy. And uh, I want to jump into that because I know it's a controversial, a controversial term in, in some members of the Muslim community. But before we do, just related to the the previous note on on being held back by the old garden and things like that. Um, I saw your interview on CNN with uh, with Jake Tapper. Is that his name? I think it's Tapper. Uh, Jake Tapper. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. And uh, it was about the the COVID situation, and you you made a, a very nice du'a, and it was in English. Um, which was great. I liked it because then, you know, people can understand it better. Uh, and, and obviously it's allowed, and a lot of classical scholars say it's allowed. And Sheikh Hasekali does a very nice one that he does after or before his Jummah starts, his Jummah Khutbah. Um, why don't we all do things that way? Why don't all Masajid have their dua in English? I, I mean, I, I don't know. Do you mean in the United States? Yeah, like why don't we, because it's our local language, it's our... You know, we're not some things that we have to do in Arabic, like reading the Quran and, and, and the Salah itself has to be in Arabic. But all the other stuff can be in English, right? It can be, but everybody can't also speak English. Like there's a huge Spanish speaking Muslim community that oh. exists in different parts of the country. Then they can there's, do theirs in Spanish. I mean, so but I think language becomes important, right? Mm. Because we're essentially subservient to language. So questions in our tradition are critical because answers are going to be given to the questions. So if somebody says, you know, why is something only this or that? The person on the receiving end is going to now exist in a frame of their own consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. And their own terminologies. Uh, and it's not going to always resonate within the demographic that's now listening on a podcast or watching on a YouTube video. Because what comes across as subjective is going to now have to fit into somebody else's life that has different details to it, right? You can make du'a in whatever language you want to at the end of the day. Yeah. If we're asking from like a fixed standpoint, you know, at Jummah, there's two opinions to it, right? One opinion says that the primary purpose of the khutbah is ibadah, it's worship, and that it just has to be done in Arabic like everything else. Mm. And there's another that says it's ta'lim, education, and so there's kind of room to mix languages, right? Mm. But anybody who says that du'a can only be done in a language, like the etiquette of du'a is that you do it in words you're familiar with, yeah. you know? I think like 
people become constrained to what they're familiar with and they don't know who to kind of turn to for legitimacy using COVID for an example. Mm -hmm. Right. I talked to like a ton of like well-known shiuch and I was like, why isn't anybody talking about how to pray Juma in the midst of this or like, you know, other rituals that we engage in and not with any assumptions of what it should look like. Yeah. But it seems like there's a hesitancy in being the first one to offer an insight. Exactly. Right. And as soon as somebody does it, then like everybody else is like, oh yeah, like that's what we got to do. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a challenge pedagogically that exists, you know, in that we have a very, um, you know, we have a methodology that's like not always equipping somebody to say, here's my thoughts or my ideas. A lot of like our books of theology and fic have elements of continuity, but they also demonstrate elements of change within particular contexts. They're mm. speaking to the realities of what's taking place there, right? So like somebody's going to have to answer theologically for people, why would God allow for COVID-19 to exist in the first place? Mm. The same way like you have the idea of black suffering answered theologically, why is there slavery, right? Why are there these things that you can't now turn to centuries ago, but somebody who's in the contemporary era has to be able to say these are reasonable questions as people are exploring things for themselves. Mm. And so what becomes the precedent can become hard to change, but normalcy is something that can fluctuate. And so you start to think out again, well, how does legitimacy establish itself? Right. Mm. And some of that is just a product of time. I've gone to masjids where like in the UK where they're like deeply ethnocentric. Yeah. And there's like thousands of people coming to just pray like Asr and Maghrib. And the imams of those masjids will say to their entire congregation, this is the first time somebody is going to address us in English because they realize that there's a need now that comes in and they're setting that standard, right? Mm. I was with Imam Siraj Wahaj at his masjid in Brooklyn. My sister works for the city of New York. Nice. And he said to his congregation, we're gonna have our sister Ali Latif come and speak here. And she was probably the first woman to speak from the front of Masjid at Taqwa, Imam Siraj's masjid. He plays a role in shepherding his community to a place, yeah. right? It creates a conundrum now, though, in certain masjids where the imam's on a rotational basis, they're flown in, you know, all of these kinds of things. So at some level, the other institutions start to set the precedent. If you go globally, a lot of people, a generalization I'm comfortable making, look westward to like our YouTube channels and podcasts, right? Like your podcast could mm. probably do great in a place like Malaysia or in like you know, the Gulf states or Indonesia, because where religion is corporatized, the government's faxing out the khutbah, you know, early in the right. week, you can go to the website like on Wednesday and read what the Jummah khutbah is on Friday, right? These people turn this way because we don't have those restrictions. Yeah. And they're looking for like other things. And then when you go on the ground there, there's, people who have ideas, but they don't know who to turn to, to justify authoritatively. Mm. And so we, we start to like chip away and root it still in what's in our tradition. We're not creating anything new, 
but just giving people now different insights on things that they might not be exposed to. Do you know what I mean? I gotcha. Yeah, yeah, no, that's solid, Ola. Um, so you seem very comfortable talking about fiqh then. Am I okay to asking you fiqh questions? If not, it's totally fine. You could. I don't know if I'd know the answers to them. Okay, okay, no yeah. worries. Um, but just to jump back to the term uh, uh, patriarchy, do you think Islam is patriarchal? No. Well, well, actually, let's step back. How do you define patriarchy? If you're looking at it within like the common ideologies, mm-hmm. like in prism of modernity, I think you're going to get like 10 different responses from 10 you know different people that you ask them right mm-hmm. and that's an important thing to say the terminologies that i think i would al- like not align with but understand people's alignment with you know is rooted in a recognition that privilege globally um affords certain things to like the white protestant male that it does not to anybody who's not those things so patriarchy is not just about men it's about white protestant men I think a lot of what we see is like a synergy between different systems. Mm-hmm. And then where there's like a leniency to go in certain places is people are willing to be tokenizing or share a little bit of power so as to not have to relinquish their own, right? Like mm-hmm. I worked at Princeton University for a year and I was 24 when I worked at Princeton. And when I got on the ground at Princeton, I was 24, I was meeting people like Cornell West who was at Princeton at that time Tony Morrison, who has mm. since passed away, people who are, you know, founders of Amazon.com. This is like in 2006, mm. you know, and I'm wondering, what am I doing here? And then the second week I was there, I started to get letters from alumni. You know, we don't want Muslims at Princeton. We don't want your Sharia law at Princeton. Mm. Someone like you should never be at a place like this. Wow. And when I went to talk to the heads of religious life, my supervisors, their explanation to me was that the head of the chapel, the dean of religious life, uh, was moving to become the Archbishop of Southern Ohio. And these people were upset because they thought they had hired me for his role. And I said, well, that's not any better. Like, why couldn't I be the dean of the chapel? It's because I'm Muslim. Like, why is that a problem? At the end of the year, uh, Princeton does this thing uh, called the P-Raid. It's like a parade of alumni from way back when everybody's wearing like white suits with orange pinstripes a lot of princetonian pride Mm. and the way the parade is structured is that you have the eldest alums standing in the front and they are kind of followed by uh subsequent class years until at the end it's the most recent alumni Mm. and you literally have decades pass and it's all old white men Mm. You might see a little bit of color eventually, maybe some like women, but even by the end of it is mostly white men. Wow. And at the end of that year, uh, I was asked to participate at Princeton in a graduation ceremony that takes place on campuses across the country in an unofficial capacity. It's called the Pan-African Baccalaureate that celebrates uh, black and brown students graduation and mostly black and of those mostly African-American. And the young woman who is the valedictorian of that ceremony, she said to her peers, uh, and anyone who's in attendance really, uh, that just because we are at Princeton doesn't mean that we're of Princeton. And we shouldn't forget what so many had to struggle through in order for us to be where we are. Mm. So our credentials, the networks that we built, 
anything that we do moving forward should never be self-serving and should always be in pursuit of our community's benefit, the common good, and what is collectively going to be an increase. And I think that's very important when we have these conversations because academic rhetorical conversations doesn't mean that there's not real people on the other end of it that are going through what they're going through. Religion, whether we want to admit it or not, in most spheres, has built itself up in a way that tends to be like a, a boys club. And that's something that has to be acknowledged in order for us to then break down inequities in various capacities. Mm. And you see like a shift in <coughs> racial and gender-based kind of, like the Prophet Ibrahim salam, his wife Hajar, peace be upon her, She's a black woman. Mm. And Hajar is taken now with Ismail, Allah's peace be upon them both, by Ibrahim salam, to the deserts. You know, she asks him why they're doing this. Uh, she then says, Allahu amraka bihada, that has Allah commanded you with this? And he says, yes. And then that suffices for her. She's got dates and water and that's it, right? <laughs> this is where... Now we get ritual for Hajj and Umrah. She runs between the hills of Safa and Marwa, yep. and the well of Zamzam, you know, is uh, comes forth at the feet of Ismail salam as an infant kicking at the grounds, and the angel comes to strike. And a lot of people know this story, where the well now like establishes itself. You know, birds start to flock to the desert. <coughs> a tribe called the Jurham tribe, they see these animals going where there's nothing, and they send their own emissaries. And to their astonishment, they find this large body of water, this elderly black woman and her infant child. They say, can we, like, stay here? And she says, yes, but the water's under my ownership. And this is where the city of Mecca establishes itself, right. right? And so there's a lot you can pull from this, but from our conversation, something shifts where like this entire tribe is in a place where it's not now discounting the authority of this woman simply because she is a woman and she is elderly and she is black. They still engage her in a way and there's a shift away from that, right? And we see this in a supremacist society. Most corporations, most foundations, most sports, right? NFL coaches, everybody else, owners, it's all like old white guys. And there's not diversity represented. To take that sociologically now and apply it to the masjid apparatus, another word for masjid in Arabic is the jamir, right? Mm. And that in Arabic means also like comprehensive, inclusive. The Prophet establishes a space that is revolutionary in comparison to the rest of Meccan society that there's not places that you go to that are fundamentally accessible by everybody, right? And we yeah. contrast now the paradigm of gatherings that are divine to the gatherings that are human in their nature. Allah's gatherings are about letting people in. Human gatherings are about keeping people out, right? So using Princeton again as an example, because I don't work there anymore. <laughs> you know, Princeton is not just Princeton because it lets in students of like certain GPAs and extracurriculars and SATs. Princeton is also Princeton because of who it keeps out. And if it started letting everybody in, it wouldn't be Princeton anymore. Mm. That's how a lot of our gatherings function, right? You couldn't let anybody come and eat iftar at your home. 
How could you let like your child marry somebody from a different culture? How is it possible that you're praying behind somebody who's of a different ethnicity, right? Our gatherings are based as much of about who we keep in, also about who we keep out. Mm. And there's an undeniable experience that women are kept out of a lot that goes on in the Muslim community. And that's not something that we can deny, but we also are influenced by a mainstream society that privileges men in a lot of ways that it does not privilege women. And we become impacted by many of these things. You see it in the workplace, discrepancies in pay. You see it in terms of representation at like legislative levels, at levels of like any type of authority, right? You can do just data-driven analysis, you know? Yeah. And the privilege quite often affords itself now to men in ways that it does not to women. I hear you. So just to push back a little bit, um, someone might say, well, you're saying that, but Islam inherently puts women in a place that people deem today to be misogynistic. You know, how would you respond to that? If someone says that, well, women are not allowed to be the imams because the prophet of God said so. Or, uh, you know, the fact that you need two witnesses to, uh, uh, I think it's a, a marriage and women can't count. Is that right? No, you can have women as witnesses. Okay. Or is it a commercial contract where you can't have women? You have like a deep legislative history in Sharia. And there's tons of places that deconstruct this and write about it in ways that are much more better than me. Mm. Right? You can go to the Yakin Institute and they have articles and videos that talk about this. Gender as a construct plays a role in Islam. Right? Our socialization becomes really important to how we understand gender. Right? We in the United States, you know, there's a hadith Qudsi that says, Right? I am as my servant thinks I am. So the hadith Qudsi is a genre of hadith tradition that follows a construct that the Prophet says that Allah has said, and then it's what Allah has said. Mm. So in this particular narration, I am as I, my servant thinks I am. Right? You could dress how somebody else dresses or eat how somebody else eats. You can't believe something because somebody else believes it. Belief is in your heart. Mm. And a paradox of decision-making is that when you do not make a choice, you've essentially chosen. And many of us have unconsciously chosen a depiction of the divine. Now, you grow up in a society that's heavily influenced by not just a masculine, like grammatically masculine God, but a very male-centered God, right? Like, mm. you have a challenge that exists within, I think, theologies that depict a God that is like a white God and is a male God. And you start to now move away from a Quranic verse, right? That there's not anything that's like a likeness to Allah. Mm. So anything that you can think Allah is, that you understand that He's other than that, right? That incorporates now, though, this recognition that because of what we're socialized with and exposed to, we see, I would, I would be comfortable arguing, that most people identify as Muslims a God that's like an angry old man in the sky looking for a reason to push them down. Mm. And like the angry part and all of this else, 
they still will visually, conceptually understand through their organic socialization like a male god. Our theology, our tradition also gives indication that like the Prophet ﷺ played no role in the writing of the Qur'an, right? He's the messenger of a book, but that means his male voice is not in that text. Hmm. Where now we have indication of discrepancies that even come up during the time of the Prophet ﷺ in real time, the women say to him, like, it doesn't seem like these verses are talking to us. And Allah responds to those by incorporating now verses that are addressing men and women directly, as opposed to grammatically a collective that then takes on the masculine voice. Yeah. That understanding of gender is now going to have also impacts through like culture. You can't have Islam without culture. It makes no sense, yeah. right? It has to exist and manifest it can't live in a vacuum so the way gender roles now exist in certain parts of the world are going to be distinct from other parts of the world mm. it's not always a good or a bad or a right or a wrong it's just understood in those ways what our tradition does is it creates now mechanisms that allow for things to have definition to them we have literally like categorizations that you know in most Schools of thought are five, the ahkam, sharia. In the Hanafi school, they add in a few, so it's seven, right? But everything gets categorized into these realms. And where there's like delineation of something that is definitive, it's a God-centric religion. Mm -hmm. That it assumes that there's going to be certain things that God asks you to do, that you love to do, certain things that God asks you to do, that you might struggle with and certain things that you don't understand but that conceptualization of who Allah is is going to make a difference I am as my servant thinks I am if you believe in a God that you don't like really think of other than through taking your life events to identify who he is as opposed to reflecting on who God is and to make sense of your life then obligation is going to be burdensome as opposed to liberating, right? It's going to be harder to do. And then you're going to have people who manipulate things in ways that are really, really challenging. And so are there things that can pop up that there's defaults? Yeah, there are. There's fake opinions where like in women gatherings, a woman is the imam. And mm. other opinions, it's like, no, you don't do that. But it's a sign of spiritual immaturity for someone to say they know the opinions that exist across the board, every opinion on everything. And a lot of it's not absolute. Similar to instances that come up across the board of just how our tradition applies in different ways. Yeah, some of it's going to be like a challenge to rationalize because we don't exist in a prism that's just irrational and rational. It makes sense to me or it does not make sense to me. But we add in a third frame that is super rational that it says it doesn't need me to understand it in order for it to be valid. I don't know why we pray three rakahs at Maghrib time instead of like six. Yeah. Right. I have no idea. Right. But when I believe in a God that loves me more than a mother loves his child, it makes a difference now in how I approach the ritual. I think that is an important frame. And it's also an important frame to understand that women get treated like garbage a lot. Mm. And that's not something that anybody can deny. 
and people manipulate like text in order to justify certain things and it's deeply problematic. My mother is, you know, close to 70 years old, mashallah. There's times I've gone to masjids with her or she's told me, she's like, I went to pray in a masjid and you know, there's a barrier that's there and they just keep pushing it back. My mother has like had hip surgery, like knee surgery. She has to sit in a chair when she prays and she's in prayer and somebody's like pushing like a screen against her and she like taps against it to indicate that she's there. Mm. And the guy says to her, like, you shouldn't even be here in the first place. Wow. Right. And it's like, who are you to tell that 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 can't be done? But the precedent is there, right? Like there's an allergy of some kind, right? I know shiuch who are like super in a place of women only here and men here and yeah. you stay. And they'll still say, if you are a woman who is out in the dunya, you're working, going to school, then you better be going to the masjid, right? Unless you're like in a space where you adopt a lifestyle that says, I'm mostly in the house and that's it you're not like devoid of still needing a place of replenishment, mm. you know? And so seeing like people who are abused quite often and being in a place that recognizes that like we have challenges when it comes to those who are underserved and underprivileged, there's no shortage of things that can give us indication that like women are not treated well. Mm. And then it then makes it harder to kind of be in a place where you reconcile ritual as you're coming to a place where your overall experience is, is something that's hard to, to kind of grapple with and nobody's validating it. You see what I mean? I hear you. Um, so you said something interesting, but then you, you mentioned something that made me want to ask a question. But just to, uh, to, to jump back to that, since Islam, some aspects of Islam can be distinctive place to place, culture to culture, uh, like, for example, like I have a friend from Kuwait uh, who told me that when he turned, I think, 10 or 11 years old, he never saw his friend's mom again like because they wear niqab and they're all black, so he doesn't see her face, and he hasn't seen her face since. Uh, to me, that's, like, wild, you know, being born and raised in the U.S. Uh, you know, my mom wears a hijab. My friend's moms wear, wear hijab. But I see him, and I talk to him. Uh, so given that that's the case, that some aspects of our deen, like there's parameters, right? And within that spectrum, there's things that are all halal, even though they're different opinions. What do you think about the notion that women can marry themselves without a guardian? I don't have a thought on it, mm -hmm. right? And I think that's important, you know? Because, like, I, I don't have thoughts on every single thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like I need to. In the Hanafi school, there's a valid opinion that says that the wali is seen as a strong recommendation, right? The wali's role is to essentially have your back. Right. They're there to make sure you don't marry an idiot. Right. Right. And there's no shortage of people who don't honor their role as a wali. Yeah. So if you're now in a place where your wali is abusive to you, right? I mean, there's, there's like a, a difficulty when you have religion that turns into a list of platitudes. Yeah. I had a young woman who came to see me who she uh, was telling me about her father who is uh, alcoholic, uh, physically abuses her mother, emotionally abuses the mother as well as her and her sisters, wow. has pictures up around their house 
of women that he's having open affairs with. Wow. And at the end of the conversation, she said to me, uh, do you think it's haram for me to dislike my dad? <laughs> and I was in a masjid and uh, visiting to give a talk. Yeah. There was like a lot of, you know, a few hundred people. I posed, I broke them up into groups of like 10 diverse men and women, race, etc. And I said, if this girl asked you this question, what would you say? And when we came back to debrief, not one of them could tell me that they thought it was okay for her to like dislike her father. Right. I was like, what are you talking about? I've never met the guy. And he sounds like a dirtbag, yeah. right? Like he's clearly like a jerk. Yeah. Now, when you're in a place where you don't have the ability to navigate or it's not your qualification or you work in like absolutes where there's not meant to be absolutes. Yeah. You think that guy is going to do right by this young woman when it comes time for her to get married? Right. And 100%. he can be like the wali, like in an honorable way. You see what I yeah. mean? Wait, did you say all those people, those groups said that it's not okay to dislike them? Not any of them felt comfortable saying that she should dislike her her dad. Wow, that's yeah. insane. Yeah. I thought you said the opposite. No, no. They all were like hesitant. Because wow. you live in this like set of platitudes. This is not like you want to talk to yourself in platitudes, go ahead. But Islam is about reality. Mm. You know, like this guy is not treating his family well. And you have now like a spectrum of age. People, they're in a masjid. They're going to like Juma and whatever else, right? Mm. How is it that nobody's ever told them this, you mm. know? Or like, what are they really listening to? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's a that's a challenge. It has solution to it, but it first has to be recognized as a problem. Mm. And so where you have now opinions that come up, they're not meant to just be like, let's just throw it out and you know everybody go and get married to whoever you want yeah. to, and there's just blatant disregard for stuff. But there's also like wisdoms to certain things. Mm. And there are circumstances that necessitate recognizing like the applications of things on case by case basis mm. that like not everybody has a wali that is really got their back. Yeah. Not everybody is really looking after like the best interests, right? In the Hanafi school, the idea being that men and women in Sharia can carry out their own financial contracts. So to the marriage contract being a contract they can do on their own accord. Mm. They don't need like somebody's permission to do it. Right. And there's evidences and there's basis for it. And there's other people who would say like, no, like the wali is an integral and you need that to be there. But then you still have to like work in the recognition that some people's dads are really terrible human beings. Mm. And that's just like something that's there. You, you see what I mean? Yeah. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, what about, and I'm sure this, this probably comes up for you, uh, just because you're, you're working at a university. What do you think about gender segregation? Does it have to happen? Like, is it a big deal if, for example, I'm sitting in this chair, and this chair that's right beside me, a Muslim girl is sitting in it, and we're listening to a lecture that you're giving at NYU. Would that be something okay? Or does there have to be a certain distance or there has to be a barrier or there has to be glass in between us like in some massage? What is the bare minimum of requirement in, in your mind? I, I think I, I'm going to take a step back sure. and maybe share an anecdote. I went to a conference pre-COVID that was 
like a, I think like an MSA conference. It was all like college students attending, mm. right? And a school from the South that had like a small Muslim population, somebody from there said to me, hey, can, you know, some kids from my college talk to you after this next session is done? I said, sure. And the session cleared out and the room was empty. And then like 40 kids walked in and they just sat in the chairs and they were staring at me. So I was like, what are we doing, guys? Because uh, nobody was saying anything. They were yeah. like, just talk to us. And I was like, what are we talking? What is happening? We just had a, a lecture. Yeah. We're doing another one. And they're like, you know, just tell us some things. And it was very ambiguous, right? And then I said, what, what would you like me to tell you? And it eventually got to a place where they said, you know, talk to us about, like, how do we deal with people who do things on our campus that, like, they're not supposed to, you know, like, listen to music or talk to the opposite gender. And I said, what do you mean? Like, why is this what you want to talk mm. about? Because in my head, I want to be like, this is terrible. I just want to yeah. leave right now. And there's a young woman who was speaking to me. And she said, well, you know, like, it's haram for women to talk to men and men to talk to women. And I was like, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a man and you're a woman. You're talking to me. <laughs> and she was like, yeah. And I was like, is this haram? And she was just like staring at me. Uh-huh. And now there's there's literally 40 of them. And I said, what does the word haram mean? And one person said, something's haram if, you know, it hurts you. And I said, okay, if you told me, God forbid, that my dad just passed away mm. and that hurt me, did that mean you did something haram? And I said, words have definitions. And if you don't have a base understanding of something, it's going to be used against you or you're not going to know how to use it. And think about this. There are 40 of you and you are at a level of education that is qualified as higher in its fundamental base. Mm. And you don't know what the word haram means. That's a problem. Right. It doesn't take a lot to be Muslim, right? We have a high level of devotion in comparison to other religions. You go to like any of our major like religious sites in the world and they're filled with people, mashallah, right? Yeah. May Allah protect us and preserve us in that way. And you don't need like a detailed understanding of it, you know? Yeah. But if you think about it, right? Like what a lot of us have is just fiqh. I'll use an example. I'm gonna pull my hotel card out. Islam has like dimensions, right, to it. You can use the Hadith Jibrail as a basis for this, mm. right? What a lot of us have is just like Islam as practice, ritual. And if you have that as one dimension, most of us don't even have all of it. We just have like parts to it, mm. right? But if you just have one dimension of something, regardless of what it is that you're looking at, it's gonna look like a line, very mm. simplistic. What our theology does uh, affords itself now is a second dimension, iman, and it now yields like shape. Because you go from one dimension to two, the line becomes a rectangle. It mm. can become a diamond. It can be whatever. But you literally are able to draw more from it by enhancing through not simple reductive understanding, but bringing complexity what our tradition then does is adds a third, right? The Hadith Jibra'il, right? You worship God as if you see him. Ihsan comes, and this is now what brings like depth, volume. That you understand that like you can see something and I can see it, 
and it can be seen on 360 degrees of perspective on an infinite number of planes. The husn of the Prophet allowed for him to see something how he saw it, but understand why somebody else would see it in the ways that they saw it without him having to become them. Mm. And that everything is not just, God is one, undeniable, mm. right? May Allah make us sound like in our tawheed, mm -hmm. right? The finality of... You can't argue some of these things. That's just what Islam is. Somebody says, I'm Muslim, I don't believe in God. I'm Muslim, I believe in two, five, seven gods, right? You're like, well, that's not Islam, yeah. right? But now when you have something that is not just uniform, it necessitates understanding that there's not like a particular all-size-fits-all answer to this question and mm. people have to be comfortable with it different spaces are going to look differently do i think there's a value to having gender separated spaces yeah just like there's a value to having spaces where black people get to talk to black people about what it's like to be black because i'm not black mm. and i'm not going to be able to relate at that level that you can now find familiarity in experience you need to have experiences where women can speak to women. You need to have experiences where men can talk to men, but you also need spaces where people can hear and understand from each other. Because how can I possibly be something that I'm not? And the only way that I'm going to recognize the lived reality of someone else is by being able to shut my mouth and just hear what it is that they go through. And if I'm so allergic to being able to like listen and just understand what's gonna happen. And you can see it, right? My wife <laughs> went with me to a masjid mm. when she was pregnant with our second child and she had our first child, right? And I'm speaking at this masjid and she doesn't come with me to a lot of things. So she came with me to this. I was like, this is amazing. It's a beautiful masjid. I've never been to it before. The women's section is multiple flights walking up. Wow. The bathroom is multiple flights walking down. Wow. My pregnant wife, whose bladder is this small because she's pregnant yeah. and has a child with her because the children are just there with the women and not with the men, she's gotta like walk up and down this staircase multiple times. And when we left, she was like, whoever built this masjid does not know what it's like to be a pregnant woman, mm. right? Do you find that in the hadith ever? Where a woman's like, the prophet didn't understand what it was like to be a pregnant woman? No, like yeah. you don't. But he's in a space where we can't deny the importance that he doesn't talk so much. And when he speaks, his statements are very concise. And he's in a space of empathetic listening. It's not frustrating to me, but it's a problem that we're in a place where somebody doesn't know if it's okay for somebody of an opposite gender to be sitting next to them or not. Mm. Or like is going to have like a, you know, explosion if they see somebody like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'll give you another example. I had a guy who came to see me who like loved Islam and wanted to convert to it. And he had a friend who was at the same firm as him. Uh, who was like giving him insight into religion. And this guy came, we talked, and now months into it, he's sitting in my office with this guy, his coworker, and he's having some like inhibitions. And I'm like, well, what's the problem? 
And he said, I don't understand two things. One, I don't get why as a Muslim I can't have a dog, you know? Mm. And then the second thing he said is, I don't really understand what this lota thing is, right, that you use <laughs> when you go to the bathroom. So I said, let's talk about the dog. And he said, I grew up in a home that was broken. My dogs were like my best friends. Now I'm being told like dogs are haram. Mm. I was like, a dog is not haram, right? And it's not that even any part of a dog is haram. There's some opinions that say the saliva of a dog is problematic, mm. or by default, like its fur and everything it sheds. If you get some on you, just wash it off, right? You learn like the fic. I was like, but there's also opinions that distinguish between a wild dog and a domestic dog. And the basis that they use is that there is people. Uh, of the companions who would use dogs in hunting mm. and that when the the hunter would shoot like the bird or whatever the dog brought it back in its mouth and if that dog saliva was nidges it was filthy then it wouldn't work mm. right and so they're they're extrapolating meaning from it not reductively that this is what it says and that's it but they're thinking about it right mm. And then we got to the Lota thing. He was like, I just don't get it, you know, because he Googled the word Lota, mm -hmm. right? And I don't know if you're South Asian or not. No, I'm uh, Arab. So yeah. we, we call it like the, the, the Stinja. Yeah, yeah, right. But like in the Indian subcontinent, mm -hmm. if you Google the word Lota, a Lota is not ever like a normal size, mm -hmm. right? It's shaped strange. It's always like neon green uh -huh. or blue. And this guy's like, what am I? He's like, it can't fit in my desk. Do I put it on top of my desk at work? Like, am I supposed to carry it around? Mm. And I turned to his friend. I was like, hey, man. I was like, do you have one of these things on your desk? He's like, no. I was like, what do you do when you go to the bathroom? <laughs> He's like, I use like a water bottle. I'll wet mm -hmm. some paper towels. I was like, did you tell this person that? He's like, no. And wow. I was like, do you see why he's freaking out? He was like, yeah, I guess so. And I said to the guy, I was like, functionally, it's like a bidet. Do you know what a bidet is? And he said, yeah, we used to have a bidet in my house. And I was like, in our religion, it's not enough to just like move excrement around on your skin. Mm. We wash it off because when we pray, that's something that's considered impurity. Mm. And he was like, that makes a lot of sense. He was like, I would prefer to use a bidet, right? And I was like, that's what it is, mm. right? The idea is that you don't have to have it in this hot pink, like Aladdin lamp looking thing <laughs> that's gonna just draw attention to you. The idea is that you're washing yourself at the end of using the bathroom. And then I turned to the other guy and I was like, do you understand that you made this beautiful religion of ours to this guy? Something that was about just dogs and like, how do you wash yourself after <laughs> using the bathroom? I was like, where is God in this conversation? Yeah. You know, but you can only give to somebody what you possess in the first place. And if what most of us have is just this, and not even as a vehicle that's a means to something, it's just an absolute ends, and becomes weaponized to tear people down, yeah. right? Then that's a problem, do you know what I mean? So yeah, there's some spaces, men sit on one side, women sit on the other. There's some spaces, you could be sitting in this chair and a woman sitting next to you. There's some spaces where people prefer to have a barrier, people prefer to have overt separation. Mm. That's f all of it works, right? And to be able to recognize, yeah, it's a part of our tradition, but it's not the only part. 
and you start to like build upon it and grow. I mean, think about how miraculous it is, man. I am Kashmiri background. My parents, after partition, my dad moved to Pakistan, grew up in Lahore. And even the room that we're sitting in, I went to visit the house he grew up in, uh, in a place called Gualmundi in Lahore. Mm. It wasn't even as big as this room, right? He and his three siblings and my grandparents lived in this two room house. My grandfather was a bank teller that would go to a bank on a bike and would come back and then have my dad and my uncle study to become a doctor under a lamppost outside their house because they had no electricity, mm. right? They lived through partition and colonization and all kinds of things. I can't imagine my grandfather, let alone like my grandfather's grandfather, would ever be able to fathom that you and I would be sitting in Florida talking about what we're talking about and that there'd be so many messages here mm. and that there's so many other things that are going on, right? There's immense growth that if we see ourselves connected to something much bigger, it's not that these are things that are not important to understand, but they're not like the only things that are there, right. you know? And there's so much more that we like remove ourselves from, but not being able to be comfortable with the fact that there's different ways to do it in different places. I hear you. Yeah, it's just, uh, um, I, I, I totally get the, the perspective that it's, uh, uh, there are definitely, um, uh, more important things to talk about. There's a uh, more central things to Islam than that. I'm not uh, saying that. I'm saying this is important. Yeah, yeah. The fundamental base of our community is made up now of individuals, individuals that are parts of families, individuals that come from diverse backgrounds. You need to be able to understand how men and women should interact, yeah. right? And in an overtly like sexualized, hypersexualized society, it becomes problematic where yeah. supremacy is a modern day shirk, right? It elevates the ego and it says like, you just do whatever you feel like, mm -hmm. right? The interjection of morality and ethics is important. So our religion has like guidelines on things, but there's also like flexibility and an evidentiary based system you have it look different ways in different places at the end of the day yeah you know? yeah for sure because i mean it's not that we're trying to look at islam and say how can we interpret everything so that it reflects today's society's moral standing today but there are also a lot of things that are more flexible than pe pe people make them out to be or that everybody suddenly has to be exactly the same right yeah. The companions of the messenger, right? Yeah. May Allah be pleased with all of them. Yeah. They were all very different people from each other. They didn't have this like rugged sense of uniformity and homogeneity, mm. but even their demeanors, their personalities, their life struggles, they were all different people and they saw things differently. And the Prophet salam, as like a person that was connected to all of them, did not seek to make them exactly the same. Mm. And there were times Umar says to the Prophet when they go to Medina, the women in Medina are not like the women from Mecca. Yeah. Right? These women respond to us differently than they did there. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Those are realities. The Banu Arfada come, 
people of Abyssinia, what we know as modern-day Ethiopia. There's this festival, a celebration that comes into, uh, you know, it, it takes place, and they start to celebrate as their own cultural norms, and they bring out drums and play the drums, and crowds gather around them, and Omar goes to stop them, and the prophet says, let them be. Let people understand there's latitude in this deen of ours, mm. right? And that's, like, an important part. I can appreciate people wanting to stay committed so that we don't water down our tradition, mm -hmm. right? We do have a Quran and we do have a Sunnah, but it's something that also enables, like, you know, you have a hadith that says the entire world is a masjid, right? Mm. Meaning, like, you could pray wherever. You know, it's not a bathroom. You could pray. We could pray in this room. We could pray on this table, yeah. right? But if the idea is that the entire world is a masjid and you can go anywhere and pray in that world, then it also means that somebody can be Muslim anywhere in the world. Mm. And everybody is different from everybody else. And so things are going to look different. Yeah. And that's just something to be comfortable with. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But, but there are so there are some core things that never change. And then there are some things that are allowed to change, right? Like there are things that are I shouldn't bit. put my hands on somebody that's not my mahram. Okay, and so I'm not in a place where like I definitely I should never force it. Mm -hmm. But like in our tradition, especially like man to woman, men have to be overtly conscious of putting their hands on somebody that's not their mahram. Yeah. Right. So th there, there is an opinion though that I think Sheikh Hasakali just recently put it out in the lecture that that uh, in in some cases when the, the matter necessitates, there's an opinion in the Shafi'i school that they can shake hands between men and women. You're going to have specifics that you have to make your decisions and choices on. Yeah. Right. So if you take like a recognition of what's this Dean about, you know, and on matters of externals, where do you create ease and not diff the prophet hears a baby crying. He shortens the prayer. Right. He gathers to pray, uh, Salat with people and then a couple of nights he doesn't come out and the people said, what happened? And he said, I don't want to make it hard for you, mm. right? Like it's a consistent thing that comes up in different ways. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That idea of seeing things now through a prism of beauty, how I see you is not just telling me about who you are. How I see you tells me a lot about myself. Mm. So if I can only see what is like perceived inadequacy and deficiency where you're not doing Islam well, that means there's something wrong with me, mm. right? If I can point out all of your flaws, right? Where does the prophet of God do this? And in the instances where he gets upset, people are abusive, they're oppressive, they're racist. Where people are, there's literally a hadith in the Muwatta of Imam Malik where a person comes to the prophet and he gives him a bottle of alcohol as a gift, right? Wow. <laughs> he, he's like, you know, and the prophet like, respectfully is like, I can't take this, right? And then the guy says to the person who's with him, like, okay, just like go sell it, give it to somebody else. The prophet has to be like, hey man, you can't do that either, right? Yeah. But like he's he's with people, you know? He's like, he can't change what is like fard and haram, but he's in a place where he exerts compassion and recognition there's hadith that say towards the end of time, like holding on to a sunnah is going to be like holding on to a coal in your right. hand, right? Yeah. And to have a legalistic framework that gets completely devoid of like the ethical framework that the religion is built off of, 
where is like love in this? Where is compassion, yeah. you know? And if you're focused purely on externals and you're seeing only externals of others, it's a good chance then you're not focused on your own inward internal development. You know mm. what I mean? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And it sounds like uh, uh, what you're saying, I think it, uh, uh, it's, it, classically there's precedent with uh, Imam al-Shatabi who applied what he called the, the principle of ease in his rulings. Uh, so, but some people would push back on that and say, well, that's not ease. That's following your own desires. So, and a lot of people overseas will blast people in the West saying, you're just trying to appease your, ma-. <laughs> you know, like they, they think that people in, in, in the West are trying to liberalize Islam, trying to change Islam from its roots. That's okay. Just like I told you before, when you asked me if I have a thought on something, uh-huh. why do I need to have a thought on everything? Yeah. Right. I mean, can you imagine like, there's people in the world today who have an opinion or idea on everything, you know? I, I, I'll give you like a concrete example. Yeah. I had an encyclopedia reach out to me asking if I could write an article on the Alqaf system that existed in Ottomanist Turkey. Mm. And I wrote back to them, I was like, no, like why, why would I do this, yeah. right? But similar when I go to Muslim communities, and they ask me to speak about certain things, I'm gonna tell them like, no, like I am not, it's not even like qualifications definitely, mm. but also like these are not things that I have like perspective on and mm. I have to be comfortable with that. Why should I have an opinion on who you are sitting next to at the end of the day? Mm. And why should I even assume that like the person you're sitting next to is somebody that you're not allowed to be sitting next to? Mm. Do you know what I mean? If there's something that's happening that's creating now like actual issue, right? There's like a need for me to like butt my nose in. You know, there's indications from you or the person next to you that you're not safe. There's Mm. something wrong, right? But if I'm like in this like micromanaging, let me just be like the police of everybody, forget about everybody else. I'm going to be miserable. What kind yeah. of life is that to live? Do yeah. you know what I mean? I want to see like the beauty in the world around me. I want to be able to find meaning in things, right? And not just exist at like a surface level. I'll give you another example. Yeah. I, I talk a lot and I'm sorry. No, no, you're I good. Hope it's okay. I'm enjoying this. I was a TA uh, at a college, a writing TA, mm. you know, uh, when I was an undergrad. And I don't know like based off of my complexion, it's sometimes ambiguous to people like where I'm from and what part of the world culturally, et cetera. And I've had people like think I'm like everything you can imagine, Mm. you know? And so it was winter time and I, uh, and it was snowing in New York. I still remember. And I had made wudu to pray in the musalla that this university that I was at uh, it was one of the CUNY schools in New York. It's called the New York City Technical College. Mm. And I was a writing TA there. And I went to pray in the musalla that they had there. I follow an opinion that says I have to remove my sock when I'm making wudu, mm. right? I wouldn't wipe over my sock. And it's a valid opinion in the Hanbali school. I'm not discounting that. But I had taken my sock off, washed it, and it's freezing outside. I dried my foot off and put my sock back on because it's cold. Yeah. I went to pray in the masala, and there was a guy that joined me to pray. There's another guy that was sitting, leaning against the wall, and he was looking at us and didn't say anything. And then when we finished our prayer, 
he spoke in Urdu to this other guy and said to him that, hey, you have to repeat your prayer because that guy is wearing socks and that means that he didn't take his socks off to make wudu and he wiped off over his socks and his wudu doesn't count so your prayer doesn't count. And the other guy is just like, oh man, I didn't know. You know, he's like a simple, you know, whatever. And I turned to the guy leaning against the wall and I started talking to him in Urdu. Mm. And I was like, you are so stupid, man. (laughs) Like, not only are you talking about me in front of me, behind my back, right? But I understand every word you said. And not that it's any of your business, but I did take off my sock and I washed my foot. And even if I didn't, who are you to tell me that my prayer doesn't count? Mm. And he was like, I'm so sorry, brother. I didn't know. (laughs) And I was like, you should be sorry because you are creating like divisions in ways that you don't even realize, Right. right? It's very like intoxicating, but there's a subtlety to arrogance. May Allah protect us from it. That like, I'm in this space where I can somehow believe I'm like the, you know, arbiter of your flaws, Mm. right? I got like my own stuff that I got to work on. You know what I mean? Mm. And I truly believe like the prophetic mode is to help somebody see like their own luminosity, not to like bring people to a place of self-deprecation in the hadith where the Prophet was in a space of, uh, you know, a companion took the HUD punishment for drinking alcohol. Mm. And there's other narrations where he's like laughing with this companion. This guy came to take the HUD punishment and other people would speak poorly of him. But relevant to this conversation, the Prophet said to those people, like, don't say these things. He loves Allah and his messenger, Mm. right? Don't assist shaitan and victory over your brother. It's easy to create self-deprecation in people because you just keep badgering them with what's wrong with them. Tell people yeah. what's good about them. Tell them what's right with them. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I hear you. So, um, it's just because we went on that thread and uh, it just we just kept pulling. And I mean, I was enjoying it, and I appreciate your conversation. Uh, but just on on that same topic, what do you think about the notion that a woman's voice is is aura or impermissible to be heard? Is, is that something that applies today even, where a woman can't be a speaker, a woman can't be heard reading Qur'an or singing? or How far does that stretch? You know, the first time I heard a woman read Qur'an, uh, I was in Sri Lanka, mm. and I uh, was invited to speak at a school for women who were studying religion, and... I walked in and it was really crazy actually. I still remember I'm picturing my head. You know, they had like the stage and behind it was a poster of my face with like the title. Oh wow. But it was like a giant (laughs) size thing. I've never seen anything like it. Um, And uh, there were, it was all women in the audience. Mm. Um, And they started the program. The moderator was female, the principal was female. And they brought their students up who read Quran. And I turned to somebody in the midst of it and I said, um, you know, is this typical here in Sri Lanka that the Quranic recitation is done by women? And I said, yeah, why wouldn't it be? Right. We have women and men who are learning and reading and studying Quran. Hmm. 
And then there was other places I've been to as well where that's the case. Um, and then some places where it's just kind of very, you know, this isn't something that happens. Mm. Um, I've also seen institutionally change in like major Muslim organizations, uh, conferences, you know, speakers, uh, that organizers were of that opinion. A woman should not be in front of an audience. And they were the ones now years later, decades later, who see the importance of that mm. and they have a willingness to change like their perspective on it. Um, and so I think that's something that you're going to see, um, and continue to see. Uh, and there are spaces where you likely won't see that ever. Um, but there's also many spaces that, that you will. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's definitely a shift in, in the United States at mm. least. Um, that it's something that you're you're seeing uh, a change in. Okay, so it's it is okay then. I mean, there's people who would tell you it's not, mm-hmm. and there's many people who would tell you it is. If you come to our Islamic center, we do have women that speak. Um, I have on my staff uh, four women. Um, up until December, uh, we had a female scholar in residence on our staff um, who you know, moved on to other things for family reasons and other stuff, but mm-hmm. we're intending to hire another one. Um, and uh, she definitely spoke to everybody as do other members of our staff. And that's like what we adopt as an opinion. If I go into a space where somebody doesn't do that, you know, I, I don't know like the spaces and why they adopt it, but they have their perspective and their opinions on it. I hear I think, you. Yeah. W- what about if I did, for example, like a, a Quran halaqa? You know, it was a guys and girls together reciting Quran. Ramadan's coming up, and we want to do one juzah per day, and we had guys and girls doing it together. What do you think about that? If you're asking me personally, like, yeah. I don't think it's a problem, mm-hmm. but I'm sure there's people who would disagree with that, and that's yeah. that's their prerogative, right? Um, and you know, every space is not going to be for every person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it would be difficult to say that you all doing that in the way that you're describing or doing something that's wrong, mm-hmm. especially for the reason that you're doing it, right? Because yeah. even like shiuch who say, you know, the women should not be reciting in that way, they'll say like with the exception that it's in like a gathering where there's learning or education and, you know, this kind of stuff. Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's how do how do those like thick opinions get established? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think one thing they like to say is that, well, what if the man is aroused by her voice and that one thing leads to another and they commit zina? And the Quran says, don't come near zina. Yeah. I mean, that can be applied to then pretty much anything right. in the world. Right. Yeah. You know, and so it goes back to some of, I think, what we were talking about before who gets to identify and define the parameters of what are like those steps in between, Mm. you know? Uh, I used to teach in a Quran memorization school. I taught Islamic studies, and I didn't even know that there was women who were studying Quran at one point. And I was sitting in a room uh, uh, where I could hear like the recitation. Mm. And I heard like this beautiful recitation. You know, it was like very like, you know, you could hear like just like the genuineness in it and i said to somebody who was sitting next to me like 
that recitation is amazing. Mm. And he got very uncomfortable. I was like, what's the problem? And he said, you're not supposed to like that recitation. I was like, what? <laughs> what? And, it, you know, yeah. I'm like a young guy. Yeah. I'm like, why am I not supposed to like a recitation of the Quran? He was like, because that's a, those are like women reading Quran. You know, you're not supposed to, like, enjoy it, right? Mm. And I was like, it's, you know, and in my head, it's just dissonance at that point. Mm. And, you know, you're like, oh, okay, like, maybe I don't know something, <laughs> something wrong with me. But it's like, no, like they're reading Quran and they're reading it well and it's it's amazing right mm. you know um and that's something that should be like really cherished you know there's like a there's a documentary I forget what it's streaming on these days but it's probably on like Netflix or one of these things but it's called Quran by Heart mm. and one of the young women who were profiled in that or young people is a woman a girl from the Maldives uh I went to the Maldives twice um, and you have people who are like amazing in their recitation of Quran. And this young girl is going to a Quran competition globally with other boys and she's participating in it. And her father has like a deep kind of respect for her and is like behind her to help her like, you know, no one in the, in the documentary. And these are like people from all over the world. Like what, and they're like, I can't believe this young woman is here. Right. Um, I had, I was, and it reminded me of like a master student we used to have who was Maldivian and she was there at a, at a rally we were, we were doing that was around, um, something Islamophobic. I don't know if it was an immigration ban or something, but it was mm -hmm. like packed. There's thousands of people there and she got on the mic and read Quran and like everybody was just moved by it. You know, I don't think there's a need to like overtly sensualized things that are not meant to be centralized mm. and this is like perspective right so somebody's uncomfortable like Allah gave us all of our emotions in the first place you know none of our emotions are a problem how we respond to what we feel you know can be categorically good or bad mm. right so people might say anger is a bad thing to feel but if you don't feel anger at somebody's oppression or inequity there's something wrong, mm. right? Joy is a nice thing to feel, but if I feel joy at your misery, like that's a problem. Right. So it doesn't fit into those neat boxes. More or less like what emotions are, like the feelings we feel, they're data points. They give us insight into ourselves. And I would, in my own self-reflection, be like, why am I uneasy by this person? And what standard am I employing here to say that this is a challenge in some way, mm. you know? and it's it i think becomes like an issue that again you become accustomed to what is familiar and then it it creates like it creates issues when you now have something that's that's different you know i got you um and you know there's there's tons of people who i think would have a problem with it definitely but then you'd have to like just decide what am i doing it for in the in the first place you know what i mean yeah i hear you Does that makes sense yeah yeah exactly well then, um, we're about to wrap up two hours here, and man, that, that went by like a breeze. Well, uh, so any closing thoughts, Imam Khalid? No, I mean I appreciate you taking the time, and if we ever want to get on again, let me know, inshallah. I'm um, down. I'm sorry you have to go through two hours of this. No, no, this was yeah. awesome. Well, I, I, yeah. I really, I never done two hours with the speaker, by the way. This will be a, this will be a first. Yeah. So well, I, hopefully, I really it, it, you know, is some benefit, inshallah. And if um, anybody who's listening, I can ever be helpful with anything, let me know. I'm happy to 
to connect on whatever that might be, inshallah. Jazakallah khair. We'll go ahead and close then. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam.